If you will join me this morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you are visiting with us, we do welcome you. We're very thankful to have you. We commonly walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we've spent a few weeks here in 1 Corinthians 12, and we will be looking at verses 27 through 31. This is part three of a healthy church body. The key words for our worshipers and training are administration, miracle, and help. Let's read these verses, beginning in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, last week we looked at the first three gifts that we see in verse 28. We see the gifts as Paul enumerated them, first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. We said of the apostles that we saw twelve who were handpicked by Jesus. One of those, Judas, was an apostate, and so that left them with eleven. And then we saw later in Acts chapter 1, they needed to fill that position. And so we saw them welcoming Matthias into the apostleship. And so we were back to 12. And then the apostle Paul made that there were 13 true apostles. So someone questioned my math last week and said, there's 12 and then Matthias and then Paul. That's 14, not 13. Judas was an apostate. So there were 13 true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw that the requirements for the apostleship were very specific. We read in Acts chapter 1, as they were looking for one to fill uh, this place that Judas had left, we read what the requirements were for one who would be considered an apostle. In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we read, One of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So we saw many requirements here. That it would be one who accompanied the apostles during all the time that Jesus was at work amongst them. Beginning with his baptism by John the Baptist until the day when he was resurrected. So they must have been a witness to all of these things. 
And so from this, we saw that the gift of the apostle is a non-transferable commission. In other words, that there are no apostles today. The role of the apostles was to establish the foundation for the church, to plant churches from city to city, to appoint elders, and all of this was accompanied by signs and wonders. They established the doctrine of the church, and they set the model for the church in what we see in the church at Jerusalem. And so there are no apostles today. Doctrine is complete in the Scriptures, and adding anything to the Scriptures would deny the sufficiency of our Scriptures. Second, we saw that Paul enumerated prophets. Now, we mentioned that prophets were not just those who predict the future or are future tellers, but quite literally, a prophet is one who is speaking for God or speaking forth the Word of God. In the New Testament, the prophets more specifically were for the edification and the building up of the local congregation. They received a word from God for the local church until the New Testament was complete. So as the apostles were doing their work, as the apostles were were writing the New Testament, establishing the doctrine of the church as they knew it from the Lord Jesus himself, the prophets were providing practical revelation for the local situation. And this was very necessary until the completion of the New Testament. At which time, when the Bible was closed, when we received all 66 books of the Bible, the revelation to man was complete. The apostles and the prophets died off and left us with the infallible, sufficient word of God. And then third, we saw... Teachers, And we saw that teachers were not accompanied by signs and wonders and therefore concluded that teachers are still given to the church today. And simply, this is the gift to teach the Bible. And what are we teaching? We are teaching the teaching of the apostles. We saw this in Acts chapter 2. The early church committed themselves to four things. To the teaching of the apostles, to prayer, to the breaking of bread... And um, what am I missing? They, they gathered in each other's homes. They were breaking bread, meeting in, uh, day by day, going from home to home and in the temple as well. So one of these was they were committing themselves to the teaching of the apostles, what we have today in the New Testament. And we saw that all pastors, on account of the requirements that the Apostle Paul gives to first, in First Timothy, that all pastors are called to be teachers, apt to teach, but that all teachers are not necessarily pastors or elders. And for some, that may look like teaching in a classroom, it may be in counseling situations or one-on-one at a coffee shop, or for some it's preaching in large groups, whatever it might be. But the gift of teacher is still active today to teach the Scriptures. Now, I want to note before we jump into the remainder of the text this morning, it is very important to remember that all spiritual gifts are supernatural It's very easy to look at spiritual gifts and to 
to see what we call the cessation of the miraculous gifts, that the miraculous gifts have ceased, and to assume by that that there is no supernatural work. But all spiritual gifts are from God and empowered by the Holy Spirit and therefore are a supernatural work of God. All the gifts are given for the mutual edification and building up of the body of Christ. And so there is one Holy Spirit, there is one body of Christ that is unified with diverse supernatural gifts. Some temporary miraculous gifts, others continuing on for the building up of the body even today. And so this morning we will look at the remainder um, that Paul has listed here in verse 28. Miracles, healing, helping, administrating And we will mainly address tongues with prophecy in chapter 14. We'll touch on it briefly today, but we'll hold off on that. So we'll look at the nature and the purpose of the remaining gifts to determine, are these gifts still operational today? And if so, how are they to be used? And we'll spend most of our time looking at miracles. Now, remember in this that Paul numbered these gifts for a very specific reason. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. And then, the remainder. And so, there was very obviously to Paul an order to their importance. The gift of the apostle was of utmost importance to the New Testament church. They established our doctrine. They completed the Scriptures that we might study and learn and teach. And so on from there. So we begin with the miraculous gifts and that of the miracle worker, which had obvious significance. It was the first he numbered after teachers. So what are we speaking of here? Back in verse 10, Paul spoke of this person, the working of miracles, a gift given to a person for the working of miracles. In verse 28, he simply mentions miracles or powers. And then in verse 29, he asks the rhetorical question, do all work miracles? And so while verse 28 says simply miracles and does not say miracle workers, by implication from verses 10 and 29, we can conclude that Paul is referencing the gift of one who is able to work miracles. One, a man who is given the gift to be a miracle worker. So, of first importance, we must ask the question, what is a miracle? We tend to attribute the word miracle to many different things. For some, childbirth. It looks to be a miracle. How does that happen? We look at creation's beauty and we look all around us and see all that God has created and say simply that it is a miracle. Your son or daughter brings home straight A's. You might say it is a miracle. And poetically, this may be very true. But strictly speaking, they do not fit the the definition of miracle. A miracle 
is a work of God which is in the physical realm, uncommon to human experience and unexplainable in terms of the physical secondary agents. I know that sounds very clear. I'll read it again. Miracles are the works of God which are in the physical realm, uncommon to human experience, and unexplainable in terms of the physical secondary agents. So when we consider normal occurrences of everyday life, there are certain things that one might describe as miraculous, but they are not. We must attribute to that that they are the working of God's providence. It's also incorrect to look at miracles and say that they are violations of God's natural law. And as we speak of natural law, we speak of the things that work naturally um, in, uh, in normal circumstances. So, uh, so gravity and force and all of these things that we see working in nature. Now, miracles are above and beyond the forces that God employs in our daily experience. They are not normal. But they are not in conflict with the providential power of God. Simply, miracles are God's interruption of His normal pattern of working by an extraordinary act. It would also be wrong to say that a miracle is God's acting without any certain means. Now, certainly that has happened. Sometimes a miracle in the unveiling of God's power has been without any kind of intermediate agent or any kind of means outside of himself, such as when he destroyed Sodom. But sometimes also it is the unveiling of his might by producing some kind of effect wholly disproportionate to the, the normal means. For example, when he opened the Red Sea through Moses, simply raising his staff, that's not a normal thing. So miracles are the extraordinary work of God's power which demands the odd attention of all mankind. There's no biblical reason to limit God to performing miracles at any certain season. This is very important. We cannot limit God in His working of miracles to only a certain season. God is, even today, executing unusual feats of power. In response to the prayers of His people, God is healing in sovereign power. Some who perhaps modern medicine has said are hopeless. And we see from time to time that God chooses to heal them. So God's working of miracles cannot be limited to ages past. However, the question before us is not, is God working miracles today? He is. But rather the question is, are there specific men today in the 21st century who have been given the gift and the power to perform miracles? 
No Christian should deny that God is working miracles today. But should the church expect and be looking for miracle workers in her midst? So let's answer this question by looking at the Scriptures. And specifically, we're going to look at who were the men in the Bible who possessed the amazing miracle-working gifts. And for what reason were they given to the people of God? First, let's consider in the Old Testament. The first ever in the Old Testament we read to receive any kind of extraordinary gift was Joseph. Joseph was evidently a prophet, divinely inspired to interpret dreams, to predict the future course of history. And all of his gifts were directly involved in prophesying. Delivering divinely revealed truth. And so he was the first to receive any sort of extraordinary gift. The first miracle worker that we see in the scriptures is Moses. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 34 verses 10 and 11. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for what? All the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. So this is important. Why did God send Moses to do wonders or miracles. You remember Moses' hesitancy to approach the Israelites in Egypt with the Word of God? Remember, he had killed an unjust taskmaster. He put him to death and, and since then had failed to gain the respect from the Hebrews as their leader, as one sent by God to lead them. So he had this complaint before God. He said, they won't believe that I'm a prophet. They don't respect me. And so we see this in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, very important. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So what was the purpose of Moses' miracle-working power? They were his credentials to prove Moses as a prophet sent from God with a divine message. This is only one example in the Old Testament, but only prophets in the Old Testament had wonder-working gifts. No others did. Only the prophets. Only those divinely inspired to speak God's infallible word to his people. So, 
primarily Old Testament signs and wonders or miracles were used to draw attention to the word of the prophets, without which the miracles would only serve to confuse rather than to instruct. To have miracles without divine revelation would simply cause confusion and not give instruction. Additionally, when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel to call fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice, what was his interest? What did he want to do? 1 Kings 18.36 And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. So Elijah did not simply want to put on a show. His interest was in validating his prophetic ministry. Now, very important to all of this to... Draw this point home is Psalm 74, verse 9. The people said, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. Now, the psalmist is writing in the midst of complaints that God's people were desolate. And Hebrew poetry uses something called Synonymous parallelism. So, in other words, there are parallel lines of poetry that express the same idea in slightly different ways. And they often build on the previous line. So, this is an excellent example of that. Psalm 74, 9. They saw that signs or miracles were absent. And... As a result of that, they drew the conclusion that this was because of the absence of prophets. If there are no signs, then there are no prophets. And if there are no prophets, there is no authoritative answer to the question that we are asking. And so, the very strong implication here is that only the prophets work miracles where miracles exist. The inspired spoken word of God should also exist. So if there is no prophet, there are no signs or miracle workers. And then we look at the New Testament. This is the last period of miracles that surrounded the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. As you read through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see an incredible record of the countless miracles of Jesus. And not to the same extent as Jesus, but the apostles were also given very similar power. Now, what were these miracles for? Well, there's no reason to think or to assume that the situation was any different than it was in the Old Testament. This was the disclosure of God's New Testament truth having a superior significance to what was revealed before because of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
Now, Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 have two sections that are very important to understanding all of this. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of Jesus being the greater or the greatest prophet, greater than all others. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And then in chapter 2, we read this, chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Now, notice the past tense here. God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. He's speaking of that which has happened. And as a result, is calling us to take heed of Jesus' words. This was God's stamp of approval. Various signs and miracles and wonders were God's stamp of approval on all that was being done. Let me read a quote for you. This is from an excellent book. I recommend it for your reading on this very topic. It's called Signs of the Apostles by Walter Chantry. Here's what he writes. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 contrasts Old Testament prophecy with New Testament revelation. The comparison is intended to display the superiority of New Testament disclosures of truth. Old Testament truth was written at various times during a lengthy era of human history. There was a progressive unfolding of truth through many messengers who lived in widely distant centuries. Again, the Old Testament is marked by differing methods of communicating God's message to man. There were dreams, voices from heaven, angels speaking, and on and on and on. All of this is in marked contrast with the new era of revelation into which we have entered. We have come to these last days. In the first century A.D., when the epistle to the Hebrews was written, the last days had arrived. And the contrast is drawn between how the revelation came to the fathers and how it is now finally given. And this necessarily implies that revelation will no more come gradually through centuries of unfolding nor through a great host of messengers. As we shall see, the revelation of these last days came in one generation. Indeed, it came by one person. 
God's revelation of truth reached a glorious climax when Christ was on earth. God has spoken unto us by His Son. And in the person of Jesus Christ, revelation had been brought to completion with a dramatic suddenness. God's Son embodies all that the Father has to say to men. Nothing needful was held back for a later time. No greater revelation can be imagined. Christ is the ultimate truth and reveals it fully. He is the brightness of the Father's glory personified. All coverings are removed. He is the express image of the Father's person, fully and perfectly revealed. He is the grand period, or the full stop at the conclusion of God's report to man. The passage breathes unreserved finality. Christ, the Son of God, is the grand finale of Revelation. So complete is He as God's revelation, and so sufficient was His work as a prophet that the apostles in their New Testament books are viewed in Hebrews chapter 2 as merely confirming what the great prophet had already said. Apostolic writings are echoes of what was heard from the lips of our Holy Lord. When the Holy Spirit of inspiration came onto them, it was to bring back to their memories what Jesus had taught beforehand and to illumine them concerning the significance of His sayings. The Son of Revelation shone in Jesus Christ. The apostles' writings were not new beams of light, but reflections of the glory that shone in the Son of God. This view of Revelation coming to an end in Jesus Christ pervades other passages in the New Testament. End quote. So in this we see only a few examples of the miracle working that was given to serve a specific purpose. The New Testament calls these sign gifts. And what is a sign? A sign is a, a mark or a means of identifying something very specific. So miracles were given as signs. They had a specific purpose. Jesus did not do miracles simply to provide merciful humanitarian aid. Yes, He was merciful. Yes, He granted healing and life to many, many people. But most importantly, Jesus did miracles to prove His power, to prove His divinity, and giving evidence to all that was said about Him and by Him. Remember Isaiah's famous prophecy was that the virgin-born son was a sign. And Jesus' first miracle, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, is called literally the beginning of signs. The healing of the nobleman's son was his second sign. And miracles are also among the signs of the apostles. They were apostolic credentials. Romans 15 tells us that the Apostle Paul's ministry was verified by signs and wonders. So the need for this kind of authentication in their day is obvious. Picture yourself as a loyal Jew in the first century, hearing another Jew come to you and tell you 
that God has reordered your entire way of life. He's insisting that the old way is now gone and we look now to this man called Christ and we follow and believe and seek to obey all that He has commanded. That would be a difficult thing to grasp, certainly. But then, as you would watch this Christian perform such great miracles as healings, raising up the dead, you would be able to come to no other conclusion but that his power is of God. And so he must be telling the truth in this time. Then miracles served as signs in this instance. They testified to the truthfulness of God's messengers and established their authorities. This was their intended purpose. So the clear understanding of New Testament writers was that their authority and their direct revelation from God was confirmed by miraculous gifts. And once the revelation was confirmed, the gifts were given to prove its genuine nature and then were removed. So to be very clear, there is no purpose that would be served today in seeking miraculous gifts in our midst. The purpose has already been served. So what about the other gifts that we see listed here? Very, very quickly through these. Healing. Healing works in tandem with the gift of a miracle worker. This is one who has been given the gift of restoring health or even sometimes giving life to uh, the sick, dying, or the dead, to re-establishing health or even raising the dead. Again, the purpose was the same in healing. Confirmation of the apostolic prophetic message. Now, don't lose sight of this. Does God heal today? Yes, absolutely. Does God heal today through specific men and women with a specific gift to do so? No. Why? Because those were given as gifts to specific men to confirm the revelation that was given by the apostles and the prophets. So God is at work healing, but not through specific mediators. The gift of helping. This is closely related to the description in the Bible of uh, the office of deacon, to the diaconate. Those who are called to the diaconate have this gift, the spiritual gift of helps or helping. It is a gift with a particular ability and desire to provide assistance or works of mercy, especially to those who are poor and needy. So a few questions to ask of this, and we should ask this of all the spiritual gifts. Is this accompanied by signs and wonders? We don't see that in this specific gift. Is the purpose beyond this gift to confirm divine revelation? Again, we do not see this to be the purpose. Are the mandates of what this gift is given for to fulfill, are they otherwise commanded in Scripture? Yes. We are called to love our neighbor. 
We're called many, many times to serve the poor, the fatherless, the orphan, the widow. And so we see that this gift of helps or helping is still given in great measure today. It is not a miraculous gift. Yes, again, it is supernatural because it is a work of the Holy Spirit. But it is not miraculous in that it is accompanied by signs and wonders. Now, don't assume that this is only given to those, uh, only those with this gift are to provide help and mercy. (laughs) We cannot say, I would help you, but I don't have the spiritual gift of providing mercy and help unto you. We are all, as believers, called to these great tasks. But these are specifically those who lead in service. They set the example and bring others along with them to serve. The gift of administrating. Literally, this is governing or uh, other, otherwise can be translated as a pilot or a sea captain or one who holds the helm or steers. So within the church, this is primarily given to the office of the elder. Now, remember, all elders are called to be apt to teach, but not all are primarily gifted as teachers. Some are more gifted at administering. See, in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so in that, he draws this conclusion that There will be elders who are assigned to various tasks and are gifted in various ways. Can they all teach? Yes, they're all apt to teach. They are all teachers. But some have greater gifts, such as that of administrating. And again, we have to ask the questions. Is this accompanied by signs and wonders? No. Is the purpose beyond this to confirm divine revelation? No. Therefore, we can see that this gift is likewise present in the church today. And then we get on to various tongues, and he mentions in verse 29, interpretation. We will address this big time in chapter 14, so I'm not really going to get into it this morning. But as he speaks of various tongues, literally is saying a variety of languages. A variety of languages. The ability to miraculously speak a language foreign to oneself. Now Paul then brings all this section to a head with a list of rhetorical questions. Verses 29 through 30. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And the obvious answer to all of this is no. Remember, we spoke two weeks ago that the body is made up of diverse gifts. We share great unity, but in that body, in our unity, there is great diversity of gifts, all given by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the entire body. And so we see that Paul is mentioning that there are many different gifts within the church. They're all to be honored as such as they're given for the mutual edification of the entire body. So why is it so important that we spend 
three weeks on these verses. I made reference to it last week. But it is this, the sufficiency of Scripture. So we may ask if miraculous gifts are evidence of the denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, does this mean that the New Testament Christians denied the sufficiency of the Old Testament Scripture? And the obvious answer to that is yes, and for good reason. The Old Testament Scriptures, after the coming of Christ, were no longer fully sufficient to reveal God's full revelation. Are they sufficient for us today? Yes, but not in their entirety. They are sufficient alongside the New Testament, which was then revealed through the apostles and prophets. But now the New Testament is complete. Therefore, the miraculous gifts, which were given to prove their authenticity, have ceased. So the presence of miraculous gifts today would wrongly imply the same thing that the New Testament church did rightly in their context. Namely, to show that God's revelation at this time is incomplete. And so gifts being practiced today imply, knowingly or unknowingly, that the apostolic word of God in the New Testament is insufficient. Peter makes an astounding claim in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we had something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, Peter says, we were eyewitness to all of these Things, all of these miraculous things with Jesus. We saw Him resurrected from the dead. But, verse 19, He says, we have something more sure than our own experience, than seeing with our own eyes. It is the prophetic Word of God that we too have today. God's Word is supreme. Scripture alone is supreme and trustworthy, not human experience. God intends for our faith and our hope and our assurance to rest on something far more reliable than our experiences. He calls for us to rely on and rest in and be assured by His Word. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Matthew 16.1-4 And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He said, 
When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. They desired to see with their eyes, and he said, You have seen with your eyes, and you still do not believe. You have the full, complete Word of God, and yet you still do not believe. What will more signs do? Nothing. So Paul ends this section by calling them to earnestly desire the higher gifts. The miraculous gifts are attractive, right? They could serve to, they certainly did in the Corinthian church, to fuel their pride, to make them popular. But Paul is saying, really, ultimately, these are not all that important. Seek the gifts that do more to bring greater edification, greater building up to the body. What is the greatest thing that the church can do to be healthy? to fulfill its purpose, to build up the body. He says there is a more excellent way. And we'll look at that next week. So I want to end by asking the question, should we seek or ask for a greater measure of the Spirit today? Yes. We always must be calling on the Holy Spirit to keep us, to carry us along, to illumine the truth of the Scriptures to us. But is there a need today for new revelation? No. In John 15, 15, Jesus said, All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. There is no more revelation than what we have So what is it when we see those who claim to be practicing the gifts? What's going on there? Some may conclude that they may be under some sort of satanic power. And at times, this may be very possible. We never want to deny the fact that that is a very real possibility. But many who desire the so-called gifts have a genuine desire to know the Lord more fully. And we certainly don't want to deny that either. Genuine Christians but are perhaps being fueled by their emotions or some kind of psychological phenomenon. During the Great Awakenings of America, this was called fanaticism. And it was very rampant. And it is even today. But... We must, we must firmly deny one's experience, whatever it may be, when anyone claims to be prophesying or adding to God's revelation. The Spirit of God no longer gives inspired utterances. The apostles have communicated the authoritative word of God. Jesus promised the Spirit would teach His apostles all things, and the Spirit has come and fulfilled the promise, and now we have the results of that in the Scriptures.
And we must conclude with that. We have the Bible. We have God's full revelation. Let us rest in it. Let us rejoice in it. And let us see it as fully sufficient for all of life and godliness. That we would live to honor and glorify Him forevermore. What a great joy we have to have the full Word of God. That we don't need to look for those to give us divine utterances from God. They have. They've recorded it and we have it in our own language. Thank the Lord for His Scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we have received Your Word in our language, that we can read and learn and study and be edified and fulfilled and carried along and taught and comforted. We thank You that You are a supernatural God. We thank You that the Holy Spirit that He indwells every true believer in Christ and illumines the truth of the Scripture, gives us greater understanding of the Scriptures, brings us conviction when needed, causes us to repent, gives us the gift of faith by Your grace that we might believe the Gospel and be carried along by the truth of all that You have revealed Father, we do not take lightly the fact that it was fully within your right to never reveal yourself to your creation. But in your divine grace and mercy and love for your people, you have chosen to make yourself known in very specific ways. Most ultimately, in the God-man Jesus Christ, we rejoice In Christ, the Word, the ultimate and final authority to be trusted, to be loved, to be exalted and worshipped. Lord, thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You that they are readily available to us. I pray, God, that You give us all a great desire for Your Word. That You give us a great longing to know more of Your Word that You would make us all to be like the Bereans, to search the Scriptures diligently, to study, that we would be workers approved by God. Thank You, Lord, for this time. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your people and the joy and the unity that we share with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.